Hi, I'm Sylvia Polini and welcome to the Monday Breakfast Show. This is a segment of the Twisted Perspective podcast. This segment covers great conversations that I have with amazing people, all directing to self-awareness, growth, life, health, money, sex, and relationships. So you can grab your cup of tea or coffee and join us on today's episode. We go to bed and by 12 midnight, I'm woken up by my mom just screaming, literally like what you'd say, a a person who's losing their mind. And she's just screaming and screaming in pain, in horror, screaming for me, screaming for my brother. And my dad is trying to calm her down. She's not calming down. I walked into the room, their room, and she felt like an alien to me. I didn't know who she was. On today's episode, I'm with Ernest, mm-hmm. and we'll be talking about events that happened in his life that made him have a perspective shift on a lot of things. So welcome, Ernest. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, so I guess we'll just dive in. Yes. Yeah. Let's you'd, do it. Yeah, you'd be doing more talking than I am. So <laughs> tell us your story, your turning point story. Yeah. You know, first of all, I really like the idea of a turning point. Mm-hmm. Um, I like uh, but when I look at my life as well it's like a series of turning points but one does stick out one, a few do stick out higher than others mm-hmm. so I'll also just be cautious about it for people who might listen to this and know me personally I'll also be cautious about making it look like this was the one thing one you know? big thing yeah, but totally. I know that there are few major ones that cause you know they you know they call it a paradigm shift you mm-hmm. know so and to tell my story i think it's it's impossible to tell my story without going back maybe even 16 15 years back to me as a as a kid as a as a teenager where i had a very normal maybe even boring life you know raised by uh i was born to roda kini and uh josiah okeo those are my parents they were normal working class parents and they we had a very normal life i think I, I there's nothing particularly special about a childhood even in terms of trauma or anything like that i think i just have, i was blessed enough to have a very normal life and that's not to say it was bad yeah. it was very normal but i think things started taking a turn at a point uh the first major point I remember in my life or in our family was when my mother used to work as a bank manager at a cooperative bank of Kenya. And um, she part of her job was to approve loans. So this one time she approved a loan of a friend. Her name was Nelly. And Nelly disappeared. I think ran out, uh, disappeared, ran out of the country, basically. Mm-hmm. And there was a police case out for her to find her and bring her back to answer in court for running away. And somehow my mom got dragged into it because she was a friend of hers and she's the one who approved the loan. And it was, first of all, months and months of leading up to the court case starting. 
And when it finally st- started, my mom lost her job. Wow. And she, because it was just, now she was being accused. She was one of the people being accused of, of uh, helping, of conspiring with Nelly and getting her in a position to make a million Kenya shillings and then disappear. And at the time, a million Kenya shillings was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So our life changed drastically because a few months after she, her, she lost her, a few months before she lost her job, my dad had decided to retire finally. And we did not see this storm coming at all. So now I had, I had a brother who was, in, who was just about to finish high school. I had me who was about to get into high school. And I had two parents who were both jobless. Um, and this begins that shift because all our lives we had grown up knowing knowing stability. Yeah, the next move will be catered for. Yes, everything is usually catered for. My brother was bounced around private schools like nobody's business, you know, mm-hmm. from St. Mary's to St. Hannah's to, you know, elite and then, you know, really good private schools. So he, he got that. And then I'm going into high school now and I'm being told there's a possibility you might not even go to high school or you might go to a really you know to just a public school because we can't afford it at all you know i was lucky enough to get highway secondary school which is where i went but so this changed our life completely uh it was a seismic shift and my mom would for the next three years struggle to keep us fed and you know i wrote about this in my blog and how she went from losing her job to saying okay I'm going to have to feed you guys some way. So she started selling fish by the roadside, you know. Well, from a bank manager to selling fish. And this was the roadside where most of her friends um, came back. and... Yeah, mm -hmm. from work. My friends also passed there when they were going home from school. How did that make you feel at that time? You know, at the time, as I'm just budding into a teenager and you already already any teenager who's not going through anything in life already has so much to deal with in terms of insecurities and then now you have you know we were the in our neighborhood we were the more you know we were the more well off families of the families there we were on the side of you would say this these guys are well off you know um, so to go from that to hey man i saw your mom in Kware selling fish you know What's up with that? And you don't know how to answer that, you know. It was very difficult for me at first. But what made it easier is my mom, Then she was so used to... I think the first 12 years of my life was a lie mm-hmm. because she knew what real struggle was even before she gave birth to me. So for her, it was just, oh, this is, I've been 12 good years and now I have to go back to survival mode. So for her, it wasn't that difficult. And so it became easier for me to deal with it because she was so comfortable finding a niche in this, you know. She was loved by her customers. She was, you know, she never changed. I never felt like she changed as a person, as a mother, as a friend, even as a sister to, you know, to her sisters. So I never felt like she changed. And that was, would make it so much easier for me to, over time, probably months, to just go, okay, 
this is our new life we're going to be okay and she did this and started this and after so obviously in the meantime she was still looking for jobs and in the meantime she was still fighting this court case to prove that she was innocent and this went on when i was in form one and form two and form three she finally got a job um she got a job with an ngo and finally it felt like things were turning for the best you know and uh, my dad also now could be stable he was he, was, he had tried a few businesses but they didn't go so well so my dad wasn't really bringing in anything in any bacon home so let me ask mm-hmm. um when you're in high school it's your mom's uh, fish business that was catering for your school fees yes that and a lot of i i, I really believe that and a lot of uh, debt oh because of borrowing and yes all right because it, it just couldn't my brother was finished at least when i got in my brother was finishing high school but he you know he he was in st hannah's which is a private school another time if you know st hannah's it pretty expensive school so you can't just selfish and take your kids to santana yeah. you have to finish school there so this uh this is borrowing money from family from family uh-huh. from friends um selling off a lot of assets like um land that she had bought and then now she had to sell but it wasn't like valuable land really it was land from shago basically mm. so this isn't like it's not life changing money that she's getting but she's also getting into a lot of debt i remember one day being dropped when she was taking me to school to high to to opening when i was opening the first time and she told me we're going to have lunch with your auntie who was basically a family friend but we'd call her auntie mm-hmm. and i remember the first time in my life seeing my mom being threatened because my auntie basically said look if you can't pay back our money then we are going to we're going to take this father you know we're going to you know so i remember i remember the threat and they did it right in front of me you know and this is now all that's why i said it's not one point it's a series of things that happen and then one big one that happens and now you have you can't keep ignoring it you start realizing that your mom is not indeed superman superwoman you know she's superwoman in how she carries herself but she's not superwoman in how you thought she was um she makes mistakes she she's in debt she's desperate she's uh, losing friends she's human she's human she's human and um so seeing her being threatened right in front of me before i go to school that stuck with me forever first of all you know but we were lucky enough and a few months after that she she gets this job and a few months after the, after getting the job she's acquitted she's proven innocent in court and so wow, life that's looks a, that's a case that went on for how many years it went on for three years wow that was three years three years of her looking for a job selling fish drowning in debt and on the third year she gets a job and she is acquitted and at that point we feel like life is amazing you know we have won I remember at the time she wanted to take us on holiday and my mom was a typical middle class wanted to spend money <laughs> it got there you mm-hmm. know um so everything looked like it looked like nothing could go wrong until everything goes wrong so this is my first taste of 
highs and lows. And I think from that moment on in my life, my life has always been that way. Because after she gets this job and she's acquitted, now she starts suing them. She opens a case to sue them for the damages the last three years of her life. It seems like this will be done very quickly and she'll be, you know, she'll be compensated very quickly. Our life will take a good turn. And during this time, she hasn't worked at this new place for more than five months. This one week, she, on Monday, she complains of a headache. And uh, on Wednesday, she doesn't go to work. She's like, man, this is really bad. And on Wednesday night, we go to bed. We go to bed. And by 12 midnight, I'm woken up by my mom just screaming, literally like what you'd say, a, a person who's losing their mind. And she's just screaming and screaming in pain, in horror, screaming for me, screaming for my brother. And my dad is trying to calm her down. She's not coming down. I walked into the room, their room and she felt like an alien to me. I didn't know who she was. And she was actually going through an episode. So, you know, she, she had a migraine, but it was more than that. Um, I remember the image of her almost naked on the bed because she's tearing off her clothes. She just, she, it's almost like she doesn't want to be here. And she is not responding like a human being would respond. And that's when we knew, okay, something's going wrong here. So she was admitted into hospital. And um, they put they put her on watch while they waited for her surgeon to come back into the country. He he, he had been out, so she, they uh, what's it called when they put medication on you so you are not you don't feel the pain. You know, and um, so Thursday night she's in she spends the night in hospital. Friday night I go Friday evening I go to visit her from school. And she looks okay now, but there's this big dent right in the middle of her forehead, like almost like her skull is caving in. So we ask what's going on here, and she says, and the nurse says that she will, during the night she was screaming again and looking, asking for her son, and she fell off the bed oh. and hit like a corner of the bed or something like that. And so this, this surgeon is not coming and my mom is just being, uh, this word is like, I don't know what the word it is for when they put medicine in your body so you don't feel anything. It's almost like you're drugged, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so she had hit her head. Sedating. Know, sedated. Yes, she that's was sedated. the word. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, when she was in this state of sedation, she, she hit her head. And now it seems like things were getting worse. And Saturday, th that Saturday I'd gone for a function in high school. And when I was leaving, we were in Sunshine, I remember. So now I was leaving Sunshine on the school bus for highway secondary school. And I see my brother and his best friend and his best friend's brother waiting for me at the gate. And I'm like, why, what, you know, why, what are they doing? Maybe they want to come so that we can go and check on mom because the last time we saw her, the doctors were saying 
the surgeon will come in on Saturday and by Saturday evening she'll be taken in for procedure so they can check what's going on. Um, so that's what I, uh, that's what I believe is happening. And as I, when they, they flagged down the bus and asked for Anes to come out and I come out and my brother's best friend puts his arm around me and he says, we lost mom. And I'm just like, I remember the first moment feeling I had was, why would you joke about that? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, because he he was a, he liked joking about dark things. So my first moment was, why would you even joke about that? And then it hit me that my brother was crying behind me and he couldn't tell me the news. So apparently when they were trying to rush her to ICU that morning, she died on the way there. Wow. And I just ran, you know. I just remember running. It was on Langata Highway, and I remember running, hoping that a car would hit me, you know. So that was my first encounter with death, like real serious, like somebody who you lo- know and love mm-hmm. dies. Yeah, so what was the problem? What What was she going through? Um. Later on, we came to suspect that it was meningitis, whatever uh, it was. But right. the hit on her head caused a hemorrhage. She, she, mm-hmm. she definitely was bleeding internally. Mm-hmm. And that's what started causing the seizures. You know. Oh. So that, her dying, she's the breadwinner. Without her, there's no court case, basically. Uh, my father is still without a job and without any um, reasonable means of income. And he's been left to take care of these two budding kids, basically. I'm in my four, I'm, I'm in, I'm now in form four at the time, about to sit for my exams, by the way. Um, yeah, it was just a month away from KCPE. Mm-hmm. And uh, my brother is. I just rolled into USIU. My dad can't afford either, you know. And um, he finds himself overwhelmed. And within nine months, I think, he's hit by a stroke, the first stroke. And, you know, we were just at home and somebody calls us and says, your dad has collapsed in Tao. Come to ambassador you'll find him in a in a restaurant here and so we organized for somebody to take him to kenyatta it seemed like he came out of that one uns- you know unscathed because after a few weeks of being in the hospital they came out he was able to walk he was able to talk but he wasn't the same but the pressure kept coming because 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 now i finished form four i can't go to school I, I you know i wasn't an a student so i wasn't going to get any bursary or anything like that um i'm 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 home for a year i've been home for a year nothing to do the only thing i can do is eat my brother is two years i believe into usiu they are not really paying anything my dad's not paying anything he's trying to sell off a bit of our land from where we live and then the stroke hits him again. It comes again. 
and now this time it's the one that puts him in bed you know so now he can't take care of us and now he can't even take care of himself um this is now in 2010 i was lucky enough at the time i managed to apply for a, quite a prestigious film school at the time and i i got accepted and i got a scholarship with the bbc to study there for 3 years so that would have really i think helped my dad but it just came at the wrong time you know the, the mm-hmm. scholarship came after he got the second stroke and now i already started feeling like a little bit of a burden on me like my dad's never getting up from this bed you know he's oh, back he home. went now yeah. he's like in he's, bed in bed the whole left side of his body was completely gone oh my god his 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 uh, leg was dead his arm was dead um and also that affected his speech so he wasn't really speaking well and it's at this time it's around this time when already I'd already when after my mom died I'd already gotten a lot of help from a lady um called Anne Mihaki who took me in almost like a son was your mom's friend? Yes. Oh no, she was she was from she wasn't my mom's friend but she was from our area. All right. I was best friends with her son. Mm-hmm. That's how she knew me. Um, so I wouldn't call her my mom's friend. Uh I was best friends with her son. And so she had real the moment she had of my dad getting that first stroke, she had already become close to us and she was the one feeding me and taking me to school and all this stuff. So when my my dad got the second stroke, I was lucky enough that she was in my life because she was the one who kind of helped uh pull us out of the dirt but i could already start feeling that pressure coming that okay your dad's not going to get up of, from this because they they told me very clearly with a stroke it gets worse before it gets better especially when you get that second one and the severity with which my dad got the second one it's very unlikely that it gets better it's also it's almost trying to arrest it you know mm-hmm. and so for the next 8 years of his life my dad would live basically within 5 meters of his bed he had a uh, you know he, he could get up drag himself to the to to his bedroom door where he could get some sunshine and the bathroom and that's about it you know at least after the first stroke he could walk around mm-hmm. but after the second one um it was impossible for him to do much other than eat sleep get some sunshine uh take a bath go back to bed that was it you know that was his life for 8 years up until 2017 when uh, his, his his feet started swelling massively and we took him to hospital and after they did tests on him the doctor told us uh what's happening is his body is retaining a lot of water because the the kidneys are not doing their jobs right and the reason the kidneys are not doing their jobs right is because his heart is slowing down oh my god and they told us you are going to have to 
make a decision. You can go back home and be with him because he doesn't have long. Or you can try and get him on a pacemaker, which will be super expensive as a surgery. And also with his condition as a stroke patient and with his age, he's 70% likely to die during that procedure. So let me ask, okay. um, where is your big brother at this time? Is he with you? Right. My big brother is with me, but he, he wasn't able to find... It's a good question. Um, well, by the time my, da- my, brother got, my dad got his second stroke, my big brother was now finishing USIU, but even after he finished, he was trying to get a foothold. The land that my dad had sold so that you know, we could keep, uh, keep going... He trusted my brother to be able to, you know, start his own business or do something, you know. But that wasn't going well for my brother. Um, he just kept seeming to get into stumbling blocks. So he also started really struggling in life. So I'm fighting a a battle with time to get out of school quickly and start earning quickly, you know. The film school that you did for yes, three years? The, the the film school that I did for three years. Because mm-hmm. by 2013, I was out. And by 2014, I'd gotten my first big job. And by 2015, I was doing pretty okay. And I was now able to take care of my dad. And so I'm the one who really t- took care of him. My brother was there as a person who helped give care for him. Mm-hmm. But in terms of earning money, I was the rock. I was the backbone of the, the house. What about relatives, your dad's brothers, sisters? They just want there. I, I don't know anything else to say other than they just want there. You know, um, I come from Kaksingri, which is really far away. Like it's very close to Mikingo. Oh, right. So you don't have a close knit um, relatives. Yeah. And okay, I Here. get that. You know, it's something I envy a lot with the. Sorry to sound, I'm not tribal at all, obviously. Mm-hmm. But so something I envy a lot with the Kikuyus because they seem to have a lot of their families close by, Mm -hmm. you know. And when something happens to you, generally, I know there are still families that are like mine. Generally, they're there. There's people there. You grow up with your cousins, for example. I didn't Mm -hmm. grow up with my cousins, a lot of them. A lot of the cousins I grew up with were from my mom's side, you know. Um, But they looked at our family as the family that helped them. So even when my mom died, we... They couldn't really they be couldn't, there for me. Yeah, the way, come back and you know. I get it. So, but my dad's side, they were just the whole foreign, you know, country to us. You know, so they were not there. I I I dealt with it for the first few years, but eventually I just accepted that that's how life is sometimes. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, so the doctor told my dad told us that we need to make a decision um there's something about i i don't know there's something about death knocking on the door that makes people wake up you know there's something about death knocking on the door that makes people wake up and my dad called me in after we came back from hospital you know after we got all those tests done you know with his feet swollen and he told me, listen, I've, I've lived 
you know, I've lived. And I, I had told him a few months back that he needs to write a will. And he told me, I think it's time I wrote that will that you told me. The first time I told him, I don't think he was so excited to hear anything about that. You know, mm -hmm. African parents tend to be very touchy about death. Yeah. You know, they never want to talk about death openly. So it's difficult to get them to write wills. But this time around, he was the one who initiated, who said, uh, call your lawyer friend tomorrow. Let them come. Um, so he's come back from the hospital for checkups. I think it was Tuesday. Wednesday, we have this talk about he wants to write the will. Thursday, my friends come over. No, no, no. So I got it wrong. Wednesday was when my friends come over. They write, they, they, they speak to him. They write his will. They come back the next day, Thursday. He confirms that this is what he, he wanted to, on his will. And it's amazing. That night, the day my friends leave, was the last time my father had a conversation with anyone. Because the moment he said, okay, I've done it. I've done the will now. It felt like his body and his system was starting to break down. It started first with, he stopped talking. You'd speak to him and he would just nod his head or he would just look at you. And then by Friday, he had stopped eating completely and he didn't want to drink anything. And you start feeling, by Friday night, you start feeling like that's not a person. We actually... You know, there's nothing going into his system. There's nothing coming out of his system as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember that Friday night, him sleeping. He had this wheezing sound in his, in his, um, in his voice. The whole it vibrated in the whole house. You know, nobody could sleep that night. You just hear him going. Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. You know? Yeah. And he's, he's, he, that's all you're hearing. And you just, I'm so sorry to say this, but you're almost thinking, if you're going to die, please die. Because, because this is not worth it. Right? This is not worth it for you. You're just suffering, you know? And you, mm -hmm. you, you want to tell him, just let go, you know? Just let go. And so the soundtrack for the house, that whole Friday night, even morning, Saturday, was just this wheezing sound that's coming out of this person who could you could you speak go. to him could he no. hear he was now by friday night he was now completely gone his eyes were rolled back to the back of his oh, head we called in we had called in a nurse on thursday and she would stay with him but she told us okay this is now happening he's going mm -hmm. and if you guys there's a window here if you guys want to take him back or anything like that and we had a meeting with uh, the only people who had been in his life, who had cared about his life, who had been there, which was me, my wife, my brother, and his caregiver. We came into a room and we, we said what the nurse told us. Listen, he said, you can take him back to hospital and go for that procedure, but if he has already told you what he feels like, this is the time when you now let him go. Because he can't eat, you shouldn't force him to eat. Mm -hmm. It can actually kill him painfully if you force him to eat. Um, what you can do is put water down his system so that his throat is not so dry because if his throat gets too dry, he will actually also feel a lot of pain. 
So now the only thing you're supposed to do is to ease him into the end. Um, so we actually sat down in a meeting and decided that my dad was going to die. That's how it happened. And how, how did that make you feel? Um, your instinct is to save your dad's life. Yeah, of course. I was so thankful that I had my wife there that she didn't have the connection that I did with my dad, let's say. That just, just that, I think, fraternal connection that she could be the only sober person. There's a lot of family members who have always been like, oh, why didn't you call us? We could have done Harambe and all that stuff. But they had not been there for those eight years. They had not seen my dad wither into just a block of meat that wakes up goes you know he, he they had not been there they had not seen him deteriorate into that state over eight years so i was fighting the fact that i want my dad to live but this other side was telling me what life do you want him to live what do you actually want do you want him to just breathe because if it's breathing he can breathe like this for the rest of his life. Yeah, and that's a very selfish thing to want. Exactly. Yeah. And so you, you think at first the selfish thing is to let your dad go, but the selfish thing is actually to, to, let him to keep forcing like him to live. Mm-hmm. So I remember making that decision with that, that wheezing sound will never leave me, you know. Mm-hmm. We're talking about it and I can hear him wheeze and wheeze and wheeze and wheeze. And my wife had to keep holding my hands to not look towards my dad's direction. Because she knew if I looked that direction, I'd say, let's take him to hospital. Let's go for it. Let's have, let's take debt. Let's try this, you know. And um, But we had to let him go, you know. So he had already said he wanted it. He had already made all the preparations for it. And this wasn't a life worth living, for him anyway. You know. So on Saturday morning we stayed with him, tried to put some water through him, and I remember I went to his room to um to like we were told just give him every two hours give him some water, put some water in his in his system. So I'd gone in. It was my turn to go and put some water in his system. And when I got in, it was picture of death completely you know he was you know eyes to the ceiling he had stuff coming out of his mouth he was completely uh, still yeah and that's how my dad left us you know um, and that moment walking into that room and seeing my dad just spread across the bread spread across the bed with absolutely no life. I just remember asking, before I came out to go and and tell my wife and brother that he's gone, I just remember, what was the point? What was the point of all this suffering after eight years? You know, my dad was staunch in his faith. He was staunch in the belief that he would get better. And we encouraged him to believe that because it made him feel better. And gave him hope. It too. gave him hope. Yeah. So we never discouraged that. Even though we knew the way we were told by the doctors that this doesn't get better. This 
stays where it is or it gets worse, you know? So I remember thinking, what's the point? What's the point of all this? Um, and that, I think, that was the first really big one. When my mom died, I dealt with it like a kid would deal with it. It was pain, it was shock, trauma. That's why I ran into the road hoping that a car hits me. But when my dad died, it was anger. Just that, what kind of life is this? Why? Why? Why do we have to go through all this and then just die like this? You know, there is no way my dad was hoping to die that way. You know. So, obviously, all the preparations were done. You know, we buried him and everything. And then, after we buried him, now came now. This is now I'm now an orphan. For the, mm -hmm. you know. And. I have to rethink things. It started with the house. If you're low, you will relate to the fact that when somebody dies, half of what goes on is mourning and the other half is people trying to figure out now, what do we do with the house? What do we do with these clothes? What do we do with mm -hmm. this? You know, and we're going through that motion. And I was just like, I, so, okay. My mom, so these are your, your relatives, relatives now came and then, yes. all right, because I had a case of, sorry to cut you short, mm. um, a friend of mine lost her mom and their relatives were never very involved in their lives. And then when the mom passed, the relatives came to yeah. their house and then started taking their things, mm. their two kids, actually three kids in the house. So they're like, why are you picking things? There were our mother's things. What yeah. are we supposed to do? So the excuse is that you're disrespecting your elders. Yeah. Was that the same case? Yeah, very, very similar. That's actually very, that's very common for what I've seen in, in the Luo culture. It's, uh, it's free for all. The moment somebody dies, it's free for all. And there might be cases extreme like your friend's case. There might be cases where they keep hinting. You know, like mm -hmm. picking and picking and saying, oh, what are you guys going to do with that? And what about this? And, and, and you realize that nobody's mourning my dad here or my mom. Mm -hmm. People are just thinking about the things they owned. What are you going to do with the house? What are you going to do with this? You know? And that's when I really started thinking about material things. Hi, guys. Thank you for joining us on today's Monday Breakfast Show. I hope you guys will tune in next Monday, same time, to listen to the second part of this particular episode. <laughs>